0: Good evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Lord, it's our prayer tonight as we gather together as your people, your fellowship, your church. It's our desire to know more principles about the Bible than we already know. Because you said, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We recall that in the Old Testament, it says, your people were perishing for lack of knowledge. We also know, Lord, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So we pray, Lord, that we might listen in love, so that we might Have more spiritual ammunition, more knowledge of Scripture to apply to our life situations so that we might obey you and thereby please you. Clear up, Lord, issues that have been in our minds and hearts. I understand, Lord, there's a variety of experiences represented right here, right now, and only you can adequately minister to each one. Do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. To live below with those we know, no, no, no. To dwell above with those we love will certainly be glory. That's how it goes. But to live below with those we know, that's another story. That's how it goes. That was a poem that was found in a Scottish church. Evidently, this group of people weren't getting along very well, and somebody during a service wrote that little poem, and it fell out of the Bible that he had, and it was found by the church janitor. Heaven will be great, but getting along with people here and now is another issue. And the Corinthians had a particular problem with that, getting along with each other. And this church was both a joy to the Apostle Paul and a grief. He loved them, he ministered to them, but they caused him tremendous problems by sake of their own division, by sake of their spiritual doctrinal heresy, their rampant divorce, their unbiblical remarriage, a case of incest, just to name a few, as well as a group of legalizers, some of which these Jewish believers were attacking Paul the Apostle personally, saying he was unqualified to be an Apostle, he didn't have authority, and they were bad-mouthing him while he was away. Now, Paul had written 1 Corinthians, a very stiff letter to them, a very harsh, in-tone letter, because one of the problems was a case of incest, as I mentioned. I'm going to read it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to turn in your Bible, you can follow along. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. This case of incest was between a professed Christian brother and his stepmother, who it seems was not a believer. Now, it's the kind of thing that Jewish law spoke against. It was unbiblical. The Old Testament condemned it. And Roman law condemned it. Cicero, who wrote Annals for Rome said that incest was condemned and greatly looked down upon by Roman law. So, if Old Testament law condemns it, if pagan law condemns it, Paul is saying, why do you as a church tolerate it? Even pagans don't do that. Even people under the Old Covenant don't do that. And yet, they themselves were sort of glorying, oh, we're such a tolerant fellowship, we just just love everybody. But loving everybody and tolerating everything everybody does are two different issues. And so Paul wrote a very hard letter to correct that. Now in 2 Corinthians, it seems like this guy who did this thing is now sorrowful, repentant. And enough is enough. It's time to bring him back in the church, to restore fellowship, to reaffirm love for this brother, and not to let him be overwhelmed with remorse. Be covered over by it. Brings up an issue. We don't like to confront, and and Paul didn't, by virtue of who he was, did not like to confront people necessarily. That's why he said last week, last chapter, You're glad, you're lucky, you should be glad I didn't come to you, because it would have been a very painful visit. Instead, I wrote a letter, and it would seem that Titus had taken the letter from Paul over to Corinth, either 1 Corinthians, or what was called, we mentioned to you, the severe letter. And Paul was going to meet him in Troas, and they were going to rendezvous together and sort of go over what happened when that letter was delivered and read. But you know, Jesus Christ himself said that if a brother sins against you, a sin comes up, you know about it. Go to that brother or sister personally. And if they don't listen to you, bring another person, another believer. If they don't listen to two, tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, you're to treat that person like a heathen, an unbeliever, a tax collector. Purge out the old leaven, he says in 1 Corinthians 5. A little leaven leavens the whole up. But it's now time to restore. And that's what this chapter gets into in chapter 2. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is it who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest... When I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. Now remember, we said last week, there were four reasons why this letter was written. To encourage forgiveness of this sinning brother. Probably the sinning brother is referring to the guy who committed incest, sexual immorality with his stepmother, now repentant. Second reason, to explain the change in itinerary, which we covered last week, but he alludes to it further on. Number four, three, to enlist their financial support, because were, there was a need in Judea, in Jerusalem church specifically, and Paul wanted to take an offering and deposit that money from the Gentile churches, saying to the Jews, look, you're, you're the mothership, so to speak. We got birthed in our Gentile territories because of what God did here. So we owe you a great debt spiritually we could never repay. So we just want to give you some of our finances to help you make it through the bad times. And the fourth reason Paul wrote this was to establish his own apostleship. Because in Corinth, I mentioned there were these Judaizers, a few few guys who were leaders who did a lot of bragging, a lot of boasting, quoting scriptures primarily from the Old Testament, and they were denouncing Paul's authority. So he wanted to establish that and open his heart to them. Let them know who he was exactly. Not hide anything, but explain that to them. And so I wrote this very thing, verse 3, to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So, once again, rather than visiting Corinth, he sent Titus to Corinth. Remember, he changed his itinerary, chapter 1, verse 16. Originally, Paul was going to go from Ephesus straight to Corinth, from Corinth up to Macedonia, from Macedonia back to Corinth, so he'd visit them twice, and then from Corinth by ship all the way to Jerusalem to be there for Passover, for Pentecost. It didn't work out. He's going to explain why in the next few verses it didn't work out. He learned to relax, he learned to make plans, and then let the Lord disturb his plans. That's one of the reasons he had so much joy and he could sleep at night. Lord, this is exciting. What do you have planned? It's not what I intended. So what is your intention? Paul didn't want to be with the Corinthians painfully again. He, he thought that the fellowship they have together should be based primarily upon joy. And yet they were causing him so much grief. And you know it is that way. Whenever you decide to minister to people, and some of you love to do that, you do it voluntarily, you do it in small groups, you do it in Sunday school, The very people who can cause you joy can be the very ones who cause you great sorrow. It's a joy to minister to them, and it's a joy especially when you see them apply what they learn. John said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. I tell you what, there's nothing more rewarding than to see somebody come to Christ, grow in Christ, be discipled in Christ, then start ministering. On the other hand, you spend weeks, months, maybe years working with, counseling, going over principles with someone. Maybe it's a marriage, and after months and years and prayer and labor, they divorce. Or someone who's just getting back on his or her feet spiritually and and they're getting to a place of strength, then backslide. It's frustrating. So Paul didn't want to go there again. He'd already been on a painful visit. He'd already sent a severe letter. He already sent 1 Corinthians and now was waiting for Titus to tell him what went down when he delivered that. He wanted there to be joy. By the way, there's a lesson here. Sin and joy are mutually exclusive. Where there is one, there cannot be the other. Oh, you might have temporary happiness. Well, that was a thrill. I'm going to do that again. But you know what? Eventually, there's the law of diminishing returns. You're not joyful anymore. Real joy comes by being rightly related with God and obeying Him. Let's continue, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. You see how how Paul just opens up his, his emotional closet to them. I wrote 1 Corinthians to you guys not because I was was having a bad apostle day or, or I was just mad at you or I was mad and I had to take my frustrations out on somebody. I truly, out of a heart and motivation of love, wrote this letter. I was just brokenhearted, that's all. I was crushed. He had heard about all of the problems, the incest. He had heard about the division. He had heard about the immorality. He had heard about the heresy. He had heard about the tolerance of the church for sin and the unwillingness to confront somebody so that there might be a healthy, pure church. He was brokenhearted. And he opens up his heart with that. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient For such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and to comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. What punishment is he referring to? No doubt the punishment of excommunication, disfellowship that he mentions in chapter 5. Cast him from you, purge out the old leaven, get him out of the church, follow Matthew 18. You approach the person. If they don't listen, you approach him with two. If you don't listen to two, you tell it to the church. Doesn't listen to the church. Treat them like a heathen. In hopes that there would be repentance and restoration. Now, that's over with. That's water under the bridge. This guy's been sorrowful. So enough is enough. Restore him back into the fellowship. Something else I noticed in this verse as I went through it today. It says, The punishment which was inflicted by... Who? The majority. What struck me about that, it doesn't say there was unanimity. It wasn't the totality of the fellowship. It was by most of them, but not all. And I find that to be true. Whenever you need to exercise church discipline, not everyone will agree. There will be those who say, how dare you? How can you? Where's the love? I thought we're under the new covenant. We're supposed to love. What would Jesus do? I have the bracelet. Well, pray tell, who was it that spoke Matthew 18 but Jesus himself, who gave us the very directives. And many churches are afraid of Matthew 18 and afraid of church discipline. Peace at any price is the idea. You can't have true peace without purity. You can't have biblical peace. But there does come a time when enough is enough. And a person says, you know what, I was wrong and I now want to be restored into the fellowship. And let me just tell you candidly, there have been a couple occasions, a few of them, where we have had to confront somebody who was in sin. There has been no repentance. We've had to ask them to leave the fellowship. It was a very difficult time, but I can remember a few different occasions where they came back and they said, would you restore me back into fellowship? It was wrong, I've sinned. I want to walk in truth, and I want to walk in the light of the the fellowship of the church. That was the idea, and it worked here. So, it was inflicted by the majority, and it's sufficient, it's enough for this guy. So that on the contrary, now, after all of this, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. I never liked being disciplined as a kid. Did you? Do you remember any of those instances? I remember them very vividly. As I look back on my selective memory as a child, and somebody asked me the other night, what's the earliest memory you have? Well, frankly, one of the earliest memories I have is being spanked. And then after that, I think the next memory is being, having my mouth washed out with soap. These were traumatic disciplinary times. And it says in Hebrews, no discipline is pleasant for the temporary, but it works the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I got to say, and I'm not just saying this to be gratuitous to my parents, but I have thanked them for their consistent discipline in the past. Sometimes I thought it was a little heavy-handed. I still think it was a little (laughs) heavy-handed in some regards. But I thank God they just didn't let it go or tolerate it. It wasn't pleasant, but it was definitely necessary. Now, we are not to judge those outside the church. Listen carefully to this. You know why? God's going to do that in the future sometime. What is ironic to me is that Christians, this is a typical Christian response to the ungodly society around he or she. We'll look around, we'll read the, the the articles in the newspapers, we see the crime, we see the hatred, and and we point our fingers at them. That's bad, that's horrible, they shouldn't do this. We get all upset at the world acting like the world. But then we'll tolerate the same behavior in the church and call that love. What do you expect a sinner to act like? A sinner. And I know some pretty good sinners. They're experts, man. They're great. They're like magna cum laude sinners. <laughs> They're like Nobel Peace Prize. Sinners extraordinaire. But I don't, expect, I don't expect them to act like religious, righteous people, let alone Christians. But I do expect Christians to act like Christians. And that's what Paul's getting at. We don't judge those outside the church. Nothing is said about the stepmother who committed incense, but the brother who did. That was the problem. Therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan, verse 11, should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Well, yeah. that's interesting. Unforgiveness, it seems... In the midst of a group of people, provides Satan a beachhead, a stronghold. A base of operations from which he can launch other attacks. That's why Paul wrote so heavy-handed about the division in 1 Corinthians, the first few chapters. And so, somebody has sinned, the best course of action is deal with it biblically. Don't hide it under the rug. Somebody sins against you personally, don't just... You know, act little passive-aggressive temper tantrums. Deal with it. Be open about it. Excuse me, that was sinful to me. That, that caused me to stumble. And then restore. Get it over with. Forgiveness sets you free from the control that that person has upon you. That person did something to you? You're angry with him? Every time you see him or her, you go, Oh, man, it, that person bugs me. Why do you have to act like that? They have such control over you. You know, if you learn to forgive, they have no control over you anymore. You're free, man. But unforgiveness provides Satan a beachhead by which he can, he can ruin a great number of people. And it says, we are not ignorant of his devices. Hmm. I, wish that, I wish that were always true. True. It seems that the church lives in ignorance of Satan's devices. While on one hand, they'll blame the devil for the stupidest things. That's got to be the devil. And sometimes it's not. It's just them. (laughs) It's their own flesh. It's their own temptation because they're humans. And then at other times, there's this brilliant strategy of the devil that we completely miss. Listen, his strategy basically is this. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Get into a group of people. Let there be unforgiveness, lack of love, tempers flaring, division created, and you can conquer them. So let's not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Brilliant strategies of the devil to ruin the church of God and the fellowship. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord... I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, spiritual brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, he changed his itinerary, and now he's telling us why. I went to Troas. While I was in Troas this time, I found that there was fertile ground for me to preach the gospel. Me, being a preacher, took this as an open door from God, and I stayed a while. Now let me tell you a little bit about Troas. You'll remember it when I tell you a little bit of background. Troas was was a seaport, a major seaport for Asia Minor located on the western shore toward the Aegean Sea. It was the closest port of Asia Minor to Europe. But Paul had been there before. In Acts chapter 16, there's this interesting wording that says uh, that Paul and his team went through the region of Phrygia and then Galatia and tried to preach the word of God in Asia, but the Holy Spirit forbid them. Wouldn't let them do it. Closed all the doors. They couldn't get a word in edgewise. Nobody would receive them. It seemed like, man, we've come all this way. But we can't preach. So they tried a second option, plan B. It says also in Acts chapter 16, they went through the region of Mysia and then Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let them preach the word there either. So they went down to Troas, this city, and that night, while they were trying to get some sleep and find out, what, what, what happened? What's going on? What do we do now? Paul got a vision. In Troas, a man from Macedonia stood in front of him in a vision and said, Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. So they woke up the next day and they said, you know, I get the hunch that the Lord wants us to go to Macedonia. What do you think? Yeah, I I think that was the Lord, Paul. I don't think that was a burrito dream. I think that was a legitimate vision. Let's go. So they traveled there. They didn't do any spiritual work in Troas whatsoever. They just used that as a place to get some R&R, hear from God, and then move on. So they moved on. No spiritual preaching was done. No church was developed. But this time, and here's the reason for the delay to Corinth. We were in Troas, and God opened up some mighty doors. And so he stayed a while. He wanted to wait on God to see if this was an opportunity. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. It's not in the Scripture, but it's a good principle. Be flexible to God. You know, sometimes we have everything so scheduled in our lives... And we need to let our schedule be marked by flexibility. Giving God the chance to invade our space. I was in Southern California. I felt the Lord was calling me somewhere to start a church. A friend called, said, I'm going to Albuquerque. And I said, I'll go with you. It was just one of those wild, weird things. It wasn't like I got a vision of a man from Albuquerque (laughs) saying, come over to New Mexico and help us. I didn't get any of that. He just said, I'm going. I thought, well, you know, I want to go somewhere. I'll go with you. And I told the Lord, I'll spend a year there. That's all I'm going to spend there, is a year. Okay, I've I've eaten my words, oh, about 19 different times now. Every year. But, you know, my thinking was this. I'm called to be a fisher of men. So I'm going to go fishing in Albuquerque for a year. Any fisherman that will put his line in the same hole for a year, if he catches nothing, he's got to cop a clue. This isn't the right place. Move on. So I said, I'll be here a year. I had no idea that it would become, in a sense, like a Troas, that the Lord would do a great work and he continues to do it. As long as the Lord continues to do it, I'm fishing. Well, it says, I had no rest in my spirit. Now, you get a little insight into who Paul was. He was a restless character. That's why I like him. I can relate to this guy. always had to do something. What's next? Okay, God moved here, but what's next? And he was restless, and the restlessness was accentuated by the fact that Titus, his buddy, hadn't shown up yet. He was supposed to come back from Corinth and say, Paul, this is how they received it. He didn't come. So Paul just said, I'm out of here. Interesting, restless guy on the move. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, thanks be to God. He's about now to open his heart. You're you're going to see a, a picture of how Paul views the ministry. Why he does what he does, what makes him click, what makes him tick. Some people pursue an occupation or a career, well, for a number of reasons. For one person, it might be, it's financially good. I'll be financially stable if I pick that profession. Others love the work. They're fascinated by the work. They love learning about it. They're very satisfied, and it's very fulfilling to do that kind of work. Others have the motivation of people notice them. They get the plaudence of people. Paul had none of those motivations as number one. I'm sure he got a kick out of ministry. It was very fulfilling to him, etc. But something more had to propel him because wherever he went, he was maligned, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was uh, surrounded by people who opposed him. So something more had to motivate him. And you're going to get some beautiful insight into the heart of a a true minister. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Okay, so my plans to come to Corinth didn't work out. So what? I have victory. So my buddy, Titus, didn't come back yet. So what? He's triumphing, I'm triumphing. He was flexible to the Lord. He always causes us to triumph in Christ, and through us, He diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Back in the 1970s, some of you don't even remember the era, but way back in the 1970s, through the midst of time, I was in this little Christian ministry, this little band that traveled around Southern California singing wherever we could sing and sharing the gospel. A church heard about us. They called Costa Mesa and asked if we'd come over to their community and minister in their church for a youth night. So we came over to the church. We set up, and long and short of it, the youth pastor or whoever the guy was who was in charge was, was a tyrant. And... Uh, After speaking with him and finding out what he believed in, we felt that if people came that night and came to Christ in that church and were left under that person's leadership, it would be more detrimental. So after he trying to strong-arm and uh, heavy-hand us, we decided to leave. We went to a local park and we set up. Now in my mind, I'm thinking, we just drove four hours. We prayed about this. We trusted that this was from God. We came all this way, and this guy acts like that. And it's like the door was shut. Lord, why would you have us do that? Do you want us just to spend money on gas? Is that the deal? (laughs) Well, we went out to this park. There were no announcements. There were no flyers. We just set up in the open air, gathered a crowd, shared the gospel, and a great harvest happened. People came to Christ. And then I understood, you know what? The Lord was behind it all along. My plans weren't met, but his were. He knew exactly who he wanted that night to hear. It says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph. I want to tell you what that means. There was a, a parade called a Roman triumph. If you were a general, a commander of an army, and if you defeated your enemies on foreign soil and killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers, you were qualified for a Roman triumphant procession. They would bring you back to Rome. The commander would be placed in a golden chariot. The legions behind him would march through Rome, through the streets of Rome, ending at the Circus Maximus. It's placed in downtown Rome by the Colosseum. Behind the procession were the spoils of war. The soldiers you've conquered, they'd be in chains. They'd be dragged along. They were the captives. The the crowds would cheer, we won, we won. The procession would end at the Circus Maximus. The soldiers who were taken captive were brought into the Colosseum and the crowds would be entertained as they were thrown to the lions. Very gruesome, bothersome act. But that is the metaphor that Paul uses. And I'm going to apply it. Jesus Christ came to this earth, enemy territory, defeated Satan, who's called the God of this world, on his own turf, took captive a lot more than 5,000. There were 3,000 at Pentecost, 2,000 a few days later, thousands upon thousands, and now through history, millions of people have come to Jesus Christ. He's the commanding officer. Paul sees himself as part of that parade. And and the captives that we have aren't sentenced to death, but to life. We've captured souls for Christ. So no matter where we go, here's his point, whether I'm in Troas, or I'm in Corinth, or we're in Macedonia, or I'm with my buddy Titus, or he's separated from me, there's always victory. Because no matter where we go, we're about this business to capture souls for Christ. And we walk in triumph. Not only that, and through us, he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Again, Paul has in mind the Roman triumph, the procession. As the... Commander with his legions made their way through Rome. Incense was burned along the path. There were bouquets of flowers that were thrown so that there was this beautiful aroma with the procession, which was a good thing. Remember, this is a procession with lots of horses. And uh, if you've ever been to a parade, you know what I mean. There's a unique aroma to a horse-driven parade. So the flowers and the incense help. And so, wherever we go, God diffuses the knowledge like a sweet aroma to people who hear us. The aroma of a Roman parade was a sweet aroma if you were a Roman. If you were not a Roman, if you were, say, a captive, that aroma was a stench. Because it meant certain and impending death. And so it is to the world. We share the gospel with people. And some people, unbelievers, listen to our message and all they can do is say, oh, you Christians. Your message, you're always condemning people. You're always saying, you're right, everybody else is wrong. Gloom and doom. It's a fragrance of death. But to others, it's the life-giving message That saves them from destruction. Saves them from death. Saves them from gloom. It depends on what you do with the gospel. That's the hinge. If you love Christ and love the gospel, you love the preaching of the gospel. If you don't know Christ and aren't committed to Him and are walking in disobedience to Him, you don't like the message of the gospel. It is an aroma of death. It reminds you of your condition, unrepentant condition. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. The so many he's referring to must be the Judaizers who are there plaguing the Corinthian leadership. The Judaizers... Paul is accusing, we're in it for the money. They were in it for the glory, the personal gain. You remember in the New Testament, there were the money changers in the temple? And uh, Jesus overturned their tables. They were there just to make a profit. They were there to exploit the worship of God's people. And the money changers were tied to the high priest, to the spiritual leaders. And there are, unfortunately, still money changers with us, Folks who love to exploit people's sincere desire to worship God. They don't sell doves or bullocks, but they'll send you their letters in the mail, and they'll tell you, basically, God's broke this month. (laughs) And God in heaven, even though He made the heavens and the earth, and yes, I know, He did a terrific job in that, Unless you step in and save poor God, he's going under. And so now the work of God is dependent solely upon the work of man. And yes, it does take a cooperation. Of course, we have to be pragmatic in that sense. Even Paul was. He took an offering for the church in Judea. But we must never represent God falsely or do it for false gain, peddling the word of God. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Look at verse 1. I want to explain it. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? What Paul has just said in chapter 2, in that section, could sound a little bit prideful and self-serving. The Judaizers who didn't like Paul... Now, let me just explain who the Judaizers were. Judaizers were legalistic Christians. They were Messianic Jews who were trying to go backwards. Get in touch with Israel, man. Get in touch with your roots. Keep the law of Moses. Go through all the rituals. That's what God wants. That's what God requires. I know we're under grace, but we have to keep these rituals. And so they were legalistic-minded. And they bragged that they carried with them letters that were written to endorse their ministry by some of the important people in the church in Jerusalem. So Paul is saying, do I need a letter for you? Do I need a letter from you? You are our letter. There is the fruit. I remember when we first started this ministry and our church was growing and there was like a couple of thousand and somebody said, where's your credentials? Now, I do have credentials if that's going to set you at ease. I did go to seminary, if that's going to make you feel better. But I pointed to those who were getting saved. I pointed to the church. There's the credentials. There's the evidence. You can have 10 PhDs after your name and do nothing. The proof is in the fruit of ministry. You, Corinthians, look at you, man. You're Corinthians, first of all. You live in a debauched culture. You live in a pagan environment and you're serving Jesus Christ. You got some problems, but you're still changed by the glory of God in Corinth. That, in and of itself, is the credentials for Paul's ministry. You are our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit. Of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is the heart. There's an allusion here to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is where he, gets, he, he introduces the thought. He's going to compare the old covenant, the covenant under the law of Moses, the old economy of Israel, with the new covenant by grace through faith that we're under today. Moses carried down from Mount Sinai two tablets of stone written on stone by the finger of God. He got mad. He threw them down. They broke. He had to do it all over again. But that law became the standard of God's requirements. The standard of God's requirements. Those standards could not help them meet the requirements unless they just covered over the requirements by shedding the blood of animals, but it never took away their sin, never really met the requirements. The law was a reminder of their failure, of their unrighteousness. But listen to this, and this is what what he's alluding to in this verse, Jeremiah 31. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. You are under the new covenant. You are the letter. God has inscribed it on your hearts. Not only that, God's revelation, Paul is saying, to the world of what he can do is your own life. Now, we, we, we typically think that when God reveals himself, he does it through the Bible. That's God's revelation. But here's the truth. Unbelievers don't read the Bible. And so believers need to live the Bible to the unbelieving world. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say, people see what you do, and so what is the gospel according to you? You are the epistle. The old covenant was written in your heart. You've been changed. Now tell it to the world. Now I've got to find where I left off. Ah, here we are. Verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. What is Paul saying? Simply this, my qualifications don't come from letters. My qualifications, my sufficiency, and thus my confidence in the ministry, they don't come from something derived as a human being. It's not human skill that I'm boasting in. Though, let's be honest, Paul had a lot of human skill. He was a bright guy. When he said, look at your calling, brethren, there's not many mighty after the flesh who are called, that's true, but he was the exception. He was brilliant. He was steeped in Judaism as a Jewish rabbi. He had the background of Gentile worldview and culture. He could quote to the uh, Athenians while he was preaching in Acts 17 in Athens, their own poets, Epimenides, and others, who had died years before. He just knew stuff. Brilliant guy. But he never used that as his calling card or the basis or his qualification. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how he opens up every letter, right? A bond slave of Christ. I get pretty weary of flowery introductions when people introduce a spiritual leader or a pastor. And now we have someone tonight very world renowned and we should just be very lucky that he's here. He's traveled a big distance and he's a bigwig and bl- <laughs> Why not let me introduce to you a sinner saved by grace and God save him just to show that God could save anybody <laughs> and use anybody. But Paul is alluding to something. We we get our security by the opinions that others have of us rather than the opinions that God has of us. Well, I've got this degree and that degree, and you can call me Dr. Reverend. (laughs) Well, According to the Bible, I should call you a slave. Servant of Jesus Christ. Even senior pastor, you know, I'm called the senior pastor. Where's that in the Bible? I'm just one of them. I'm one slave among other slaves on this staff. And I'm one of hundreds of other slaves in this town who also pastor in this town, God's flock. We're all shepherds of God's flock. And so if I see somebody out at Starbucks And yes, I'm there frequently. And so if I see somebody at Starbucks who is a believer reading the Bible, doesn't come to, I don't say, Do you go to our church? Well, no, I don't. Okay, we'll see you later then. (laughs) They're a Christian. I want to minister to them if I can. Who's sufficient for these things? Well, God has made us that way. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. And who made us sufficient? As ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, let me just say something about this verse. I have heard this misquoted, as if it means the letter of the law is the exactness of the law. It's the technicality of the word of the law, whereas the Spirit is the intention, the, the uh, motivation behind it. That is not even close to what it means. The letter is the law. The letter is the old covenant. The spirit is the new covenant that we're under now. The law came by Moses, John chapter 1, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He's comparing simply The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the laws of Moses, the requirements the people had to keep from the times of Israel to the New Covenant under grace by Jesus Christ. The letter kills. The Old Testament could not make a person righteous. The Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? These Jewish legalists, these Messianic Jews who came into the church at Corinth, were saying this, We've got to get back to the law. We've got to get back to keeping the Passover and Pentecost and all the rituals and circumcision. Because, they said, the law of Moses was given in such a glorious way. On Mount Sinai, thunder, lightning. It was awesome. And then when Moses came down, Exodus 34, you remember, his face was shining. He didn't even know it. They had to say, Moses, your face is glowing. (laughs) That's because he had seen God face to face, the Bible says. So Moses covered his face. But the reason he covered his face, the Bible tells us, wasn't because he had a glowing head, but because the glory, as seen in the glow of his face, was fading away. It was temporary. The law was designed to be temporary. And so that the children of Israel could not see it passing or fading away, the visible reminder of that, he covered his face. So Paul is saying, okay, it was glorious, cool, But notice what he calls it in verse 7. He calls it the ministry of death. Folks, the law can never save you. Do this and that the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and then it gives me wings. The new covenant shows us God's standard, but helps us to keep it through the finished work of Christ and through our standing in Christ. The Old Testament could never fix us. It killed us. Thou shalt not do that. I've done that. Well, then thou shalt not do this. I've done that too. Well, look at all the other thou shalt nots. I've done all that. So when I read it, it tells me I'm a sinner. I've broken God's covenant, God's standard. The law is like a mirror. When you look in a mirror, it reveals the truth. Sometimes it's not happy, it's not pretty, but it's honest. And we like certain lights because the lights flatter us in the mirror, but the truth is you're getting a very pure picture of yourself. Now, though the mirror reveals dirt on your face or your true condition, the mirror can't fix the condition. You won't take the mirror off the wall and scrub yourself with Big giant mirror cleaning myself up. It's not made for that. It's made only to reveal, and the law was made to reveal your condition and lead you to Christ in desperation. Galatians tells us the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, but once we've come, we don't need the schoolmaster any longer. The law has a purpose. It leads us to Christ, but the law can't mature us like we can be mature in the new covenant in Christ. It's like a plumb line, the old plumb lines that were used to build homes. You can you hang a plumb line from a string, and it will tell you if the wall is straight or not. Well, if the wall isn't straight, the plumb line can't fix it for you. It just reveals something to you. You might look at it another way. The law stirs up the problem. Paul said, I was, Romans chapter 7, I was alive once apart from the law. But when the law came, sin revived, and I died. I read the law and said, oops, I've done all that stuff. I haven't done all the stuff it's told me to do. If we took a glass of water that had dirt in it, and we let it settle, it would look very clear. But if you took a spoon, stirred up the water, it'd be murky. The law is like that spoon. It reveals the problem. It exacerbates the problem. It didn't fix the problem. It's the ministry of death, not the ministry of life. And that was glorious, but if that was cool, that was temporary, that was fading away, guess what? The new covenant is a whole lot cooler, a lot better. How will not the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry, notice the wording again, of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. The law was temporary. That's Paul's point on these verses. It is not permanent. What is permanent is Christ in the new covenant. There's no more new revelation. It's not like there was the Old Testament, then Christianity, and now Baha'i. A whole new revelation after Christ. Christ is it. Hebrews one one. In these last days, God has once and for all revealed himself through his Son. So it's permanent. When Paul was writing this, there there was sort of an overlapping of eras that he was writing from. He was sort of sandwiched in between the old covenant and the new covenant. In Jerusalem, there was still a temple. They were still sacrificing, but not for long. The veil of the temple had been ripped when Christ died. Soon, in 70 AD, the temple would be demolished by the Romans, never to be built again, a sacrifice never to be offered again. And there has not, since 70 AD, been a Jewish sacrifice for sin. And yet their own law says, unless you have the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So you can be devout and religious and keep synagogue services and everything else, but if you don't have blood shed, you're not forgiven. And Paul was writing in between those two covenants. Now Christ has come. The new covenant has come. It's permanent. It's not going to fade away. So these Judaizers who are saying, go back to the Old Testament, keep the laws of Moses, keep the Old Testament. Paul would say, why would you go back to something that has faded away, that was temporary? You have freedom, man, run. Run. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, there remains the same veil. Unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. What's he talking about? The new covenant. When you live under the new covenant of freedom in Christ, who washed you of your sins, and you're not under the ramifications of the law, man, you're free. But we all, see he was from the south, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. A spiritual hardness had captivated the hearts of the Jewish nation in Paul's day as well as in our day. The true meaning of the Old Testament Was and is obscured from the mind and heart of the unregenerate Jew. They read Isaiah 53, they don't get it. They read Psalm 22, they don't get it. They read Genesis 22, they don't get it. They're zealous, but without knowledge. Now Paul would know, wouldn't he? Being a religious Pharisee himself, someone who was once very zealous, he knew how people felt. And you know that Paul, though he's very bold about these issues and bold with the Judaizers who are trying to take them back to the Old Testament, Paul had a love for the Jew. And I'm saying this because I see a lot of people who get converted from a religious system like Catholicism. They come to a real rich relationship with Christ and they grow very bitter against their past. As if they they just want to cut it off completely and divorce themselves from that completely instead of trying to reach those people from the system they were brought up in. Romans 9, Paul said, I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And in Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Every time I go to the western wall in Jerusalem or the Garden of Gethsemane, I think about this. I pray at the wall. I prayed there with my son and with our group this last time. And I thought about this verse and I prayed this very prayer. I'm not Jewish, but I have a heart for them. I lived on a kibbutz. I've been to that country a lot of times. And I see a nation filled with religious people. Everywhere you look. With all of its religion, it's not saved. Yet. Packed with Jewish people, Christian denominations, Muslims, and for all of its religious fervor, blinded and unsaved. Because the veil is taken away in Christ, in a relationship with Christ. Look at that last verse. We close with it. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When you and I come to Christ, we get changed. But now listen the change doesn't stop at salvation. There's a progressive change called sanctification where we get more like Christ, holier. The word that he chose was the word from which we get metamorphosis. Just as an insect that goes from larva to pupa and from pupa to mature insect, the change is from within. We are being changed from within. The longer you walk with Christ, the change ought to be marked, noticeable, significant. So that your friend, your family, people that you knew from way back see you after a few years ago, man, are you different? And they don't mean, man, you've gotten meaner. Man, you're trying to weasel me out of more money than you used to. What are you, Christian? No. Boy, there's a change in your life. You talked about it, but I see it. you change changed from glory to glory. There's only one way to do that. Not by the law, not by legalism, but by Christ. I just want to encourage you from my heart. Make your relationship with Jesus Christ your ultimate priority in life. Not, I'm in Christ. What's next? Nothing. This is it. This is as good as it gets. It gets better in Christ if you continue to grow in Christ. If you continue to mature in Christ, if you continue to obey Christ, your life gets richer and better. If you're holding on to things like the Corinthians, and think of some of those problems they had, division, unforgiveness, all those relational roadblocks, if those things are paramount in your life and you're not experiencing God's peace, then just humble yourself. Go to a person you've offended and say, I'm sorry. I repent. Forgive me. I want this cleared up. I want to make sure there's a clear roadblock, block, a clear path between you and me, no roadblocks, and between me and God. Don't let anything stand in your way. And be aware of the lure of legalism. Well, I've come to Christ and I read my Bible, but now I'm waiting for somebody to take me captive. Give me a bunch of rules and regulations. This freedom bit in Christ this is just a little bit too disconcerting. It sounds perhaps like a joke, but cultists come to this church on a regular basis. They come from their cult. They take part in the services, and they smile. And you think, oh, isn't that great? Could be, if they come to Christ. But we find a lot of them come just to find out who you are, where you live, what your number is, what you're doing. If, perhaps, they could talk you out of freedom in just Jesus Christ and ensnare you by their little cult. Be careful. Be careful. Legalism is very alluring because it gives you little parameters. Oh, I've done this today, so I feel good about myself. And if I do this, I'll feel even better about myself. And you'll start, start living by self-righteousness. Be careful. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we're not under something that is fading away, something that was indeed glorious, the way that You reached out to the nation of Israel and at that time, the known world. But Lord, that's done. And You promised a new covenant, one in which You would inscribe Your law on our hearts. We'd be changed from within. Jesus called it being born again. Lord, I pray we would never settle for going backwards and being ensnared by the rituals, by the laws... Of a system. I pray that we would never follow. A system. That we wouldn't identify ourselves as. Protestantism. Catholicism. Calvinism. Arminianism. But we're Christians. We follow Christ. We're free in Christ. In Jesus name. Amen.